Amen. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, you are great indeed. All we need to do is look around ourselves and look at the majesty of your creation. Look at the expanse of the universe. We in our feeble human minds can't even fathom how wide and how vast your creation is, Lord. We know that for six days you toiled and you created and you breathed into existence our very lives and the world that we live on today, Lord. There is no other explanation other than you, Lord. And today we are gathered here in your name to proclaim you as our King, to worship you and to glorify you and to call you our Lord. Lord, for those here today that do not know you, we ask that you open up their hearts, open up their minds, make them curious, Lord, to find out what is this thing that we feel when we call out the name of Jesus. Why does that create smiles on our faces and tears in our eyes and cause us to drop to our knees and lay prostrate on the ground and just praise you? What is this name, Jesus, that causes that? We ask that you open up their hearts and just speak to them, Lord, today so that all of us today leave with changed hearts, leave with changed minds to serve you more greatly and to bring more and better followers of Christ. It's in your holy name that we pray. And all his people say, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you. And I want to tell you, this is a, this is a great worship team. I've had the opportunity to serve in a lot of great churches, and uh, God has blessed Rock Point Church with a fantastic group of men and women to lead you into the presence of God. And, and I'm grateful for Pastor Ron giving me the opportunity to come and be with you today as he's out of town uh, with a great cause. The Feed the Hunger program is unbelievable, and I want you to know you have reputation in the community as a church that is making a difference around the world because of your commitment to the Feed the Hunger program. And I just want to, I want to strongly champion that for you as a church because I know that God is doing an incredible thing through you to many people around the world. Watching the video, just intense to see how you're impacting lives. Thank you for doing that. And uh, also excited about uh, the, the opportunity you have in 2014 to move into your new facility. Are you excited about that? That's, that's gonna, what, a great, what a great blessing of God. And thank you, I'll say as a, as a pastor that's led uh, several capital campaigns, I, wanna, I just want to thank you on behalf of Pastor Ron for your commitment to see this project through and what that's going to mean for you in your community as you continue to minister here and meet the needs of people in your community and introduce them to an unbelievable Savior named Jesus. Well, I'm excited to open the Word of God to you this morning. Pastor Ron says, preach on whatever's on your heart. And so I want to preach to you what's on my heart today as we open up the Word. Have you ever heard of the book, uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? You read that? It's great theology. It's a book. It's, 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 it's incredible. It's the story of a little boy by the name of Alexander, and he has a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. In fact, his day starts off with him waking up with gum in his hair. He trips over the skateboard, he drops a sweater in the bathroom sink, he doesn't get a seat next to the window on the ride to school, he's called out for singing loud in choir class, his mom forgets the packing dessert in the school lunch, he slams his foot in an elevator door, the mall doesn't have his size shoe, his mom fixes lima beans for dinner, there's kissing on TV, he has to wear the train pajamas to bed, the nightlight is broken in his room, he bites his lip and the cat decides to sleep with his brother. 
Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad. There you go. It sums it up. And the conclusion that Alexander makes at the end of all of this is that, it, you know, what, you remember what the conclusion is? I guess I'll move to Australia. That fixes everything. Australia fixes everything. And you wonder, why does somebody write a book like this? Okay, I've got, I've got kids. And we read that to them when they were young. Why, you know, what's the purpose of that book? Well, the purpose of the book, apparently, is to teach children that no matter how life is for you now, bad, how bad it is for you right now, it's going to only get a whole lot worse. Actually, I don't think that was the purpose of the book. I think the purpose of the book was just simply to start kids off early by teaching them sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes life just stinks. Is there a big amen from the church? Yeah, it just is like that. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have much what? Trouble. It's going to be trouble sometimes. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not if, but when. Peter, who is writing to Christians that are facing intense persecution, listen, Peter says these words in 2 Peter chapter 4. He says, listen, you should not be surprised at the fiery trial that that you're undergoing right now as if something strange were happening to you. Hey, listen, if you came in the back door today and you are, you're in a season of life that you would call a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, week, month, year, whatever that is for you in life, guess what? It only proves that you are normal. And yet it's those seasons of life that really raise all kinds of questions in our minds and we're trying to figure out, God, how do I make it through this? And are you good and are you for me and why? And I mean, there's just so many things that come together and what we would appreciate during the difficult times of life are some answers. So I want to take you to a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you've brought a Bible with you, open up to your Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I was invited by uh, my, my dad. He, uh, I was not raised in a Christian house, and, and my dad and mom are kind of coming to faith. They're on their faith journey much later in life, and my dad's joined a Bible study, and he, he invited me to come to his Bible study and sit around with all of his retired menfolk and answer Bible questions. He says, my son's got a couple of degrees, and so we'll bring him, and we'll sit the pastor down, and we'll just throw out some questions. So I went and I sat down and we had our pizza and the, the, the Bible study leader kind of set the ground rules for the evening. And then he said, okay, now you men have prepared your questions. And I thought to myself, ah, they've prepared questions. They went away. They actually, they actually figured out how to stump the pastor. And so they've come with their questions. He said, does any of you have a question? And one guy, you could tell, I mean, he could, he could, hardly, he could hardly control himself. Shot his hand up. I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. He says, John, what's your question? John says, I want to know why a good and loving God allows evil to exist, why bad things happen if God is so good. There. Really? That's the first question out of the shoot? You couldn't have asked me, like, name somebody in the Old Testament? <laughs> the loving, the existence of God and the difficulties, the terrible, horrible, no, I mean, isn't that the question? If you figure out that question, you figure out everything. Isn't that the question? Well, what I did is I took him to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Listen to what Solomon writes. Listen to these words. Consider what God has done. Okay, wait a minute. Who has done? God has. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. And therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Some of you are looking at your Bible going, that's in the Bible? 
What do you do with a verse like this? Well, let me tell you, when our temptation is to move to Australia, it is better to go to God's Word, and God's Word gives us some really, really helpful, a helpful foundation to stand on when we experience difficulties in life. And to understand this verse, for all of you that came in with your financial difficulties and with your marital struggles and with your wayward kids and with your illnesses and with your, your, your challenges with in-laws and outlaws and neighbors and all of the stuff that happens in life right now, listen, I want you to think about this passage in four movements, okay? The first movement to understanding life and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, the first movement is what we would call reflection. Reflection. You see, the difficulties of life have a way of kind of laying bare what we really believe. There's, there's what we believe in the good times and what we'll talk about in Bible study, and then, bam, life hits us with something. And it's at that time that we really discover what we believe. I have a friend who, who, uh, whose uh, baby daughter was, was born with significant physical and mental disabilities. And he said, you know what? It was at the hospital that I discovered what kind of theology I really had. Because the difficulties of life really drive us to what it is that we believe. And sometimes what we discover in the middle of the crises of life is that we not only have terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, but some of us have terrible, horrible, no good, very bad theology that goes along with those very bad days. And sometimes it's not us who's experiencing the bad stuff. Sometimes we're trying to help people out in their very bad stuff, and we say things to people that are just flat out untrue. I was at a funeral. We were having the funeral of a man who, who was old and had passed away, but it was a little unexpected. And I overheard a friend, well-intentioned, but I overheard a friend say to the granddaughter, I'm so sorry that your granddaddy died, but God needed another angel. And so he welcomed your granddaddy in heaven. I wanted to scream. If it hadn't been a funeral, I would have screamed. I wanted to say, you can never start a sentence with these words, God needs. Because according to the scripture, God doesn't need a thing. So you can never say that. And by the way, people don't become angels. That's bad theology. But along the way, we had crafted these ideas to kind of help people along that have no basis in truth. And so Solomon says, listen, consider what God has done. When you face the crooked, difficult times in life, the very first thing you do is stop and stand back. And he uses the word consider. He uses the word twice in this passage. It means to study, to think deeply, to investigate, to dig down a little deeper. It's a great time to just stand back and begin to wonder. And, 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 and instead of reacting to what's going on, begin to reflect. In fact, I'm, I'm sure your pastor has done this, but I want to give you permission. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, you can ask lots of questions of God. You can question and wonder out loud. It's quite all right. In fact, let me tell you two questions that are good questions to ask all the time in your spiritual life, in good times and bad. Two great questions to ask. Who are you, God, and what are you doing? Who are you, God? I want to know who you are. I want to know your character. I want to discover who you are. I want to know who you are. And secondly, God, what are you doing? My wife 
has gotten rear-ended twice in the last 30 days. <laughs> That's what I said. How does this happen? I said, are you driving right? How does this happen? You know, the first time it's an accident. The second time you start to get a little suspicious, you know? But I'm thinking to myself, God, what? Just, it's inconvenient. It just doesn't make sense. And I, who are you, God? And, you know, what are you doing? What are you, what are you trying to teach us? And those are great questions to ask. Good reflection in the difficulties of life. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you take time to reflect, you will be brought to a second movement, which is the heart of this passage, and it is a reality, a sobering reality with your theology. Solomon asked the question in verse 13, who can straighten what God has made crooked? Do you like that sentence? It's not a comfortable sentence to you. Let me tell you, there are two realities in that sentence. I want you to listen to this. Here's the first reality. You ready? Everybody ready? Buckle up. Okay, here we go. God makes crooked stuff. Not everything God makes is crooked, but when there's crooked stuff, God's in it. Some of you don't like that statement. I don't like that statement. I can't believe I just said it. But God makes crooked stuff. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the moral activity of God. Okay, because God is holy and he's pure and he's perfect and he's good. He never does anything that's evil. In fact, Job affirms when he speaks about God, he says, does God pervert justice? Does the the Almighty pervert what is right? And the answer is, of course not. God always does what is good and perfect and right. But when you're heading down the life, you're scooting along straight away down the highway, and suddenly life throws you a curve. Suddenly you're, 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 you're thrust in the midst of chaos. Suddenly terrible, horrible, no good, very bad stuff appears on your radar. Listen to this. God's in that. Do you know that? You say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Let me give you, well, let's think about this just for a moment. My oldest son, 20-year-old son, Grant, had to have his wisdom teeth, four impacted wisdom teeth taken out this August. Okay, he goes to the dentist. I go, hey, listen, we're going to have to yank these things out. I say, listen, for half the cost, I'll do it out in the garage. <laughs> it was, it's going to be painful. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be, you know, it's untimely. It's all of those things. And, and while I know there are more terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things that can happen in life, for my 20-year-old son, this is his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad thing. And so we're wondering, you're scratching her head, and you're going, gosh, you know, why? And it's terrible, and I hate this. We're at the Perot Museum of Natural History the week before his surgery. And I come around the, I come around the, this is an honest, this is a true story. I come around the wall, and there in one of the exhibits is a little card that explains the history of wisdom teeth. That's, I mean, if you don't believe in sovereignty, there it is. And so there's wisdom teeth. And I said, Grant, come here, come here. That's going to teach us everything about your wisdom teeth. So he and I stand there and we're looking at the wall. We're reading the placard. And apparently, you, maybe you didn't know this, but a wisdom, the reason that human beings have wisdom teeth is because over billions of years, we have evolved because of chewing uh, tough roots and raw meat and our jaws have extended and, and have added extra teeth in order to be able to do that. But now, uh, as humans, billions of years later, apparently, we don't any longer need those things because we have a much softer diet. And so those wisdom teeth now be, create problems for us and have to be pulled out. That's the answer at the Perot Museum of natural history. There it is. And so I have a conclusion. I have a decision to make at this point. Either my son is the accidental 
result of a process. He is the biological conclusion of, a, of mutations that have happened over billions of years. And the reason he has wisdom teeth is just, hey, life happens. Or I can open up the word of God, which is a whole lot better than Australia. And I can come to Psalm 139, and I can conclude that when God knit Grant together in his mama's womb, that he gave him brown hair, brown eyes, blonde hair, big feet, a gentle spirit, and wisdom teeth. And when God gave my son wisdom teeth, he said about my son, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that great? They're going to have to come out when you're 20. But I have fearfully and wonderfully made you with wisdom teeth. That's the sovereignty of God who is always in control. You see, the problem is, listen to this, folks, because this is the meat of what I want you to hear today. The problem is that when we speak about sovereignty, we often speak about the sovereignty of God in a passive way. We put God on his throne in the, for all of the incredible things that happen. All of those incredible coincidences that take place. The wonderful way that God rescues us at the last minute. And we say the sovereignty of God. But when terrible things like typhoons or Down syndrome or cancer or automobile accidents twice in a month, when those things happen, we scuttle God away from the scene of the crime. We insulate God and we pull God back and we say, you know what? God's in charge of straight teeth, but not wisdom teeth. He is sovereign over the great things in life, but the terrible, difficult, traumatic things in life, God's not really sovereign. Or, we say, he's sovereign only after the fact that these things happen. And God looks at him and goes, eh, see if we can't make something of this. If life gives you lemons, God has the ability to make lemonade. Listen, God is the lemon maker. He makes lemons, right? Sovereignty means he is always on his throne. How often is God on his throne? How often is God on his throne? Always. He's always on his throne. He never sleeps. He's never caught by surprise. And there is nothing but nothing that happens in life that happens outside of his control. And so Solomon unapologetically says, God has made one as well as the other. The straight stuff, the crooked stuff. God's in the middle of it all. To confirm this, even Isaiah, the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Another verse you didn't know was in your Bible. I do this. That's a reality that God makes crooked stuff. Okay, here's the second reality. <laughs> you ready for this? Because some of you are going, pack up your Bible. Marjorie, we're going to get out of here. Here's the second reality. You can't make sense of that. You can't make sense of it. You're trying right now, I can tell. You're going, really? We invited this guy? This was the best we could get? <laughs> Note to self, send, send an email to Pastor Ron. He's probably in Haiti getting text right now. Okay? But Solomon says, who can straighten what he has made crooked. I don't think he's talking about who can heal what he's made sick, who can make clear what he's made hazy. I don't think that's what Solomon's talking about. I think Solomon's saying who can straighten out in their minds 
Who can make sense of the idea that God can be sovereign over all things in the universe and yet remain uncontaminated in any way from the bad stuff that happens in life? How do you bring that stuff together? Do you understand the tension? Do you? It's a hard thing to figure out. It's what we call antinomy. Let's go a little deeper here for just a moment, okay? Antinomy. The word anti means against. Nomos means law. An antinomy is something that is against the law of your thinking. It's against the law of your mind. In your head, you go, there ain't no way. I can't figure that out. That's antinomy. Let me give you a definition of antinomy. Antinomy is the appearance of contradiction. It's not a contradiction. It just appears that way. It's the appearance of contradiction between two ideas, both of them, that are logical, reasonable, and necessary. But when you try to bring them together, you just can't make them stick together. I'll give you an example. The Trinity. Anybody have any pictures of the Trinity? Anybody got that figured out yet? Anybody got that figured out? Right? Great theologians have thought about it a long time. They've argued about it and had church councils and the sort. Let's think about this just a minute, okay? First service wasn't very resounding, so I'm going to trust you to be a little better. Do we believe in one God? Yeah, Deuteronomy 6.4, one God. Has this God manifested himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, one God, three persons. Is it logical, necessary, and reasonable to believe in one God? Yes. Is it logical, reasonable, and necessary to believe that he has manifested himself in three persons? Yes. It appears to be a contradiction, doesn't it? Appears that way. It appears to be unreconcilable. But it's what we call antinomy. We know that both are true. We just can't figure out how to bridge them together. Is God sovereign on his throne at all times? Is he? Is he in control of everything in the universe? Do bad things happen in the universe? Yes, figure it out. How do I bring those two things together? Solomon says, you won't do it. You can't straighten it out. You'll try. You'll try. Let me tell you what we do as Christians. Instead of being comfortable with the dissonance and the mystery that exists in that, what we end up doing sometimes is amputating pieces of our theology. Well, God is kind of in charge, but not all the times. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, for example, you know, God kind of checks out. God's in charge of, when we say he's in charge of all things, we mean all good things, but not everything, because then there is this other force that's at work, and we start creating theologies instead of just saying, he's in charge, difficult stuff happened. I don't know how that comes together, but that's what his word teaches. You can't straighten it out. That's the... That's the reality. So what's our response to this? This is the third movement because we have a reflection that leads us to see this reality. It's right there for us in, in black and white, and it's, it's teaching us that God is, in, is, is, is over all of this stuff in life. What is our response? Well, Solomon tells us in this passage that when times are good, what should you do? Be happy. You should rejoice in prosperity. 
I mean, if good stuff's going on for you right now, celebrate. In fact, that's the theme of the book. That's one of the themes of the book of Ecclesiastes when you read it. If God gives you delicious stuff, love it. Take two scoops. If God gives you a great vacation with a beautiful picture, a beautiful scenery out over the veranda, kick your feet up and enjoy it. Take advantage of it. Capitalize on the great times of life and praise God. Celebrate. Invite a few friends. Take advantage of all the great things that God gives us in life. And you know why? Number one, because it comes from him. Number two, because you don't know what tomorrow brings. So you rejoice in prosperity. But the real heartbeat of this passage is this. We remember in adversity. We remember. Our temptation is to react. Our temptation is to push back. Our temptation is to run away from difficulty. But Solomon says, no, 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 no. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember this. God's in control. Friends, listen to this. I want God to be in control of the crooked stuff in life. There's a piece of me that wants to rescue him and go, oh, no, 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 no. my God's too big, he's too good. I, but I want God to be in control of the crooked stuff. The idea that, that the enemy who only has bad creates bad things to achieve only bad purposes doesn't make me go to sleep very well at night. But a good God who does things that make me scratch my head, but I know is using those things to accomplish good purposes, now that's something that I can, I can rest with. This is the story of Joseph. Do you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Huh? Remember his story? Joseph gets sold into slavery by his, by his teenage brothers who hadn't had that happen in their house. He's shipped off to Egypt. He gets teased by Mrs. Potiphar. And then there's a famine in the land. And in the end of it, Joseph and his family are reunited. You remember what Joseph says, that great statement of sovereignty and providence in Genesis 50, 20. Joseph stands with his brothers, and this is what he says looking back. Which, by the way, hindsight's always 20-20. Hindsight always gives us a better perspective in the challenges of life, right? But here's what Joseph said. You intended to harm me. But God intended this for good. He didn't say, you did bad things, but God mopped up. That's not what he said. He says, when you were doing your thing, God was doing his thing. And when you get to the story of Joseph and look back, here's what you'd say. Lord, praise, praise the Lord that you had Joseph thrown into the cistern. Praise you, God, that you had him taken into Egypt. Praise you, Father, that you even created a famine and you protected your people because there was a promise that you had made to Abram and you were keeping that promise. You were keeping your people safe. Oh, I wish I could get behind the curtain of history and see what God's doing. Don't you? But if we got behind the curtain, you know what we'd find? God's in control. I want that God to be in control of automobile accidents, of financial challenges. I want that God to be in, in control of medical mishaps. I want that God to be in control of my future. And if I see that he is in control, what I will discover and what you'll discover as well is that God is busy behind the scenes for our good. Do you believe that? 
that he's for your good. He is for you and he is for your good. And that God, because he loves us so much, is willing to invite the trauma into our lives because there are some things that suffering accomplishes in the life of a person that you can't get any other way. Suffering changes us, transforms us. Scriptures speak of that over and over again. Suffering releases our grip from this world. Suffering gives us a longing for our heavenly home. And God uses the difficult, the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days because from his vantage point, he has a much greater goal than you or I ever have for ourselves day by day by day. I wish you could meet a, a young friend of mine. He's a 15-year-old uh, young man that goes to our church. He's my, one of my daughter's very best friends. His name is Ethan. Two years ago, Ethan was playing football at his, uh, in his school, and he, he got a concussion. They took him to the hospital, discovered that the con- concussion really wasn't much. But while they were there running tests, they discovered that Ethan had cancer, had leukemia. And it was of the very worst kind. They began to do tests on, on uh, Ethan and begin to, you know, chemo and, and all of the tests. And they searched for a, a bone marrow uh, donor in the United States, found a donor, and Ethan was given a bone marrow transplant. You've probably had stuff happen like this in your church. The whole church comes together. It was an incredible sense of community. God doing a work in a young man's life and a family's life. One month ago, it was discovered that in Ethan, the leukemia has come back, the bone marrow transplant has failed and he's back to square one when his family left the doctor's office from the hospital where they let his family know this news I got a phone call from his dad James James says um, Ethan wants to talk to you I said sure they dropped Ethan by my house I took him over to Sonic where we sat down and sat with our you know our slushies and we talked Ethan says I have a question sure he said if I decide not to go through with this procedure a second time will God be mad at me I said Ethan you know the implications you know you know what that means don't you he goes yes I know will God be mad at me I said Ethan no I don't think God would be mad at you I think the Lord loves you deeply I think he has been so for you all along He has only good for your life, Ethan. With leukemia or without it, he has only good. And behind the curtain of heaven, God is only operating for your good and for his glory. I'm sure of that, Ethan. I said, but I want to tell you as your friend, your life is a gift. Some gifts are gifts we didn't expect, but they're a gift nonetheless. And I want to challenge you, Ethan, to really think about what God might be doing. I want you to ask him, who are you, Lord? And what are you doing right now? He says, I have been doing that. And I said, what is God telling you? He said, well, it's interesting. The Lord has led me to Acts 20, 24. Now, that's a significant verse because that's a verse that I speak over my congregation every single Sunday. It's my life verse. And so I was grateful to know that Ethan had been listening to this verse. And I said, Ethan, what is God teaching you from that verse? Listen to this verse. Paul says, for I consider my life worth nothing if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
I said, Ethan, what is God teaching you? He said, he's teaching me two things. That there is a race to be won. A race to be finished. He says, and depending on how I run it, there's an opportunity for my life to look like the gospel of Jesus. I said, so what do you do? He says, I have to finish. I said, Ethan, that's a good thing. And while you don't see it right now, I actually, I think he sees it probably better than most. I said, you would much rather have God in charge of the stuff of your life, the difficult, terrible stuff of your life, than anybody else, wouldn't you? He goes, yeah. That's the response. You go back to God's word, you remember who God is, and you remember that he is in control, and he is for your good. He is for your good. He is for his glory. Which leads me to just one last movement in this passage. Why does God do it this way? I mean, really. Why, why does God ultimately make these terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days? And here's the answer. Friends, listen to this. It's to keep us leaning into God. Solomon says, therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Translation, God keeps life unpredictable in order to keep us trusting in God. That's his gift to us. You go, gift? Gift? Really? I'd rather prefer, I'd prefer a puppy, if you don't mind. Gift? But listen to this. If our radiator never overheats, if we never break our ankle, if we never get our credit cards stolen, if our children never stray to the left and right on occasion, if those things perhaps never happen to us in our life, then we will continue to live our days predictably, securely, with little need for God. But the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days keep us chasing him. It's the reason that Job would say, and you, some of you know this phrase, you can complete it for me. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives. He also takes away. Praise God. Praise God. Because at the end of it, I get him. He keeps me focused on him. I go straight to him and I discover him. And if there's any question, listen to this. If there's any question that that's the way it works, go to the cross of Jesus. Because the Bible says... That the cross of Jesus was not some accident while God had turned his back. That the cross of Jesus was not some, some difficulty, some trauma that the father turned around and went, Oh my, what am I going to do I'll have to, when life's given me lemons? I'll have to make lemonade in this. No, the, the prophet Isaiah says it was the will of the father to crush the son. It was the will of the father to crush the son for what purpose? Because the Father knew that in the trauma of the cross, he'd take people like you and me, and he'd drive us right to himself. In the trauma of the cross, we'd get God. So I don't know where you are today. You may have come to church thinking that you'd rather be in Australia. I don't know what you're facing right now. But I want to let you know today that nothing is left to chance. God is in charge. 
And if you're in great times, rejoice in your prosperity. If you're in difficult times, remember in your adversity that God, behind it all, God is thoroughly in charge. And when you want to, if you feel like you want to escape to Australia, let your bad days lead you straight, straight into the presence of God. Our Father, I thank you for your word that encourages us. Rather than simply forming ideas about you based on what culture or popular opinion or even great Christian books that we read, rather than having our ideas about you formed by those things, Lord, our ideas are formed by the scriptures. And I would rather have a good God in charge of the curious, difficult things in life, knowing that you are accomplishing great glorious and godly purposes than anything else. So while I don't understand how all of that works, Lord, I do trust you. We trust you, God. We trust you to be at work in us doing what you would not have done any other way. We trust you to be at work in us. And we'll give you the glory. May our lives give you the glory in Jesus' name.